Hello, and welcome to the Lisa Congdon Sessions, a podcast for creative folks about living and working with more intention, curiosity, and joy. I'm your host, Lisa Congdon. Here we are at episode one, and I'm so glad you're here. I thought I'd start this podcast with some context for who I am and why I'm here, especially if I am new to you as a podcaster or an artist. So I thought I'd start with a little storytelling, um, tell you the story of how I got from birth to 53 and recording this podcast. Um, no, I actually can't cover all of that in this episode, but I will tell you the story of how I became an artist because it's different than most. I didn't actually pick up a paintbrush until I was about 32 years old, and I didn't begin life as a professional artist until I was nearly 40 years old and I never studied art or design in school. So one of the most common questions I get is, how did I go from being an adult who had zero artistic aspirations or experience to someone whose life 20 years later is really defined by art and an interest in the creative mind? So I'm gonna start with some basic facts. Um, One is that I was born on January 17th, 1968, which makes me 53 years old, and it also makes me a Capricorn. So let's talk about Capricorns for a second. On the positive side, we are independent, ambitious, driven, self-assured, loyal, right? All those good things. And on the negative side, we are bossy, selfish, superior, and competitive. I am basically a quintessential Capricorn, although I like to think that I am unlearning bossiness, selfishness, superiority, and competitiveness in an effort to be a better human. But I have no doubt that my family would agree that all of those things are true about me, both the positive and the the annoying, and were from the time I was a kid. So the origin story told by my mother of my birth was that I literally walked out of her womb and onto the birthing table cleaned myself off, how's that for a picture, and asked for a pastrami sandwich on rye with extra yellow mustard, which, by the way, was my favorite sandwich as a kid. And I loved hearing my mom tell this story. It made me laugh, and it made me feel really proud. It was this positive story of my identity in my family. I was self-assured, confident, and independent. That's how my, my parents saw me from a really young age, and I absorbed that in a really positive way. I grew up in the suburbs of Northern California, outside of San Francisco in San Jose, California in the 1970s. We lived in a tract home and a vast swath of tract homes surrounded by a creek and an almond orchard and an apricot orchard. So tract housing, for those of you who might not know, is a type of housing development in which multiple similar homes are built on a tract of land that is subdivided into individual small lots. And... Our house, as a result, looked exactly the same as about five others on the street. I mean, they, not every house looked exactly the same, but yours was, you know, the same as like, you know, the Smith's house down the block around the corner. And when I was a kid, I thought this was like the coolest thing ever. It was kind of like having the same Barbie townhouse as your best friend. Because you could walk into your friend's house and it had exactly the same layout as yours. Anyway. So my mom was a classic 70s mom. She had a giant German loom on which she would weave giant wall hangings. And she made a lot of our clothes on her sewing machine. We ate granola and cookies and homemade bread that she made with healthy whole grain ingredients like oats and wheat germ and bran. 
My cookies were definitely the least popular when it was time to trade at recess. I can, I can guarantee you that. My dad was a nuclear physicist. He was devoted to his work. And one of my favorite things to do when I was a kid is just sort of sit at the kitchen table and watch him write equations after dinner in the evening. I was fascinated. And my dad has like amazing penmanship. So anyway, the artistic part of me was entranced. In my family, being smart and witty was important. And I understood that on a deep level from a young age. So being able to pontificate or talk about what you had read or also to insert dry humor into conversations was of the highest value at the dinner table in the evenings. And, and quite frankly, all of those things still are of high value at the dinner table in my family. These things, however, did not come as naturally to me, and they still don't. I have always felt like the less smart person in my family. I have an older brother and a younger sister, and in my mind, and reinforced by my parents, they, my brother and sister, were the free-spirited, bright, creative children. My siblings and I were seen and often, often, not always, treated differently as kids. And so I internalized this notion that they were smart and creative and that I was just mediocre, at least as far as like my brains went. So here's an example. When we were kids, my mother had both of my siblings tested for the GATE program, which if you're from the US, you might know stands for Gifted and Talented Education. And I'm not actually sure that these programs exist anymore. They're actually horribly racist and terrible. But anyway, Kids who got into GATE got to leave the classroom and go do enrichment programs on Fridays. And, you know, like, who doesn't want to be in that program? So one day, I got the courage to ask my mom why I hadn't been tested, because my brother and sister had, even though I was a little afraid of what she might say. And diplomatically, she said, you, Lisa, are not gifted. You are a hard worker. So you know how you remember only important bits of your childhood, the stuff that is like emblazoned on your brain because it was either exciting or traumatic or painful? I will never forget that moment. And I want to say this now in case my mom is listening, or even if she's not. In my mom's defense, I do think she wanted me to feel loved and heard and important. And she was right. I was a hard worker. But that message, however well-intentioned, was not lost on me. Parents say things all the time to kids, even with enormous love and good intention, without realizing the impact. I have no doubt my mom has zero memory of telling me this. She'd probably even deny it, although I remember it clear as day. And I am sure she'd take it back knowing what she knows today. But the important part here is not to, you know, make my mom sound like a bad mom because my mom was amazing. The important part here is, is to recognize that that moment represented something very important in my journey. It was this reinforcement of this truth as part of my identity, that I was a hard worker, which was really positive, and I definitely embraced and used that for my entire life. But it was also a reinforcement that I was not smart or creative. Nonetheless, I wanted more than anything from my mom to compliment me and to think I was special. So I routinely campaigned for her attention in the best way I knew how, working hard and being good. And I became the hardworking independent Capricorn, that sort of quintessential conforming good girl. I followed the rules, I worked hard at school, and I did everything I was supposed to do. I was the one who could be trusted and the one who my mom never had to worry about. And over time, I convinced myself that my self-worth depended entirely on pleasing other people. 
And to complicate matters, around the tender age of 13, I began having feelings or sort of recognition internally that I was gay. So let's be clear, first of all, eighth grade is not easy for anyone, right? It's not an easy time. It is literally the most awkward time. So I'm starting off at like a kind of negative baseline, and then I'm having these feelings and thoughts. And to boot, I was in eighth grade in 1981, so times were very different then, and the idea of gayness terrified me in a way I cannot describe. I didn't know anyone gay. There were no gay role models in popular culture. It's hard to say how I knew I was gay since no one ever talked about being gay or gayness or anything having to do with being gay, except maybe as an insult in school, or definitely as an insult in school. But gay was, in my mind, bad, dirty, abjectly the most horrible thing you could be. And to be a lesbian was even worse. Lesbians were women who dressed like men and had short hair. And I was sure this was entirely incongruous with who I was. I loved having long hair and I prayed that this meant I wasn't gay. And one thing I did know, there was definitely something wrong with me. At around the same age, I was also obsessed with Brooke Shields. That's right, Brooke Shields. In hindsight, the crush was romantic in nature. I think I simply wanted to be Brooke Shields. She was like the hot star, like she modeled Calvin Klein jeans, which of course I had to have in seventh grade. And I remember my mom bought me some jeans at JCPenney and I took a Calvin Klein label off of something else. It might've even been one of my mom's pieces of clothing or I don't even know. And I like sewed it on the JCPenney jeans so everyone would think I had Brooke Shields Calvin Klein jeans. But anyways, I kept a secret scrapbook of images of her that I cut out of newspapers and magazines and I, and I hid this scrapbook on the very top shelf of my closet. I was terrified. If anyone in my family found out that I harbored this secret crush, I would be humiliated. I remember like, getting up on a chair and putting that scrapbook up on the top shelf of my closet on Ann Arbor Drive. Anyway, I was a devoted reader of Seventeen Magazine also at this time, and in one of the issues that year, they had an article about girl crushes. So its main point was that when girls have crushes on girls, it doesn't mean you're a lesbian. And I seriously must have read that article like 10 times in sheer relief. So maybe this horrible thing I felt about myself wasn't actually true. Maybe I should just go on pretending that none of this could be real. But of course, the worst possible thing would have been to stand out or be different or to disappoint my parents. I just wanted to fit in. Conformity became more and more important to me. And so I buried those feelings. I dated boys. I ramped up fulfilling my Capricorn identity. I followed all the rules. I continued to work hard at school. I did everything I was supposed to do at home. Bossed my brother and sister around like crazy. God forbid we get in trouble. And I definitely never acted on my feelings of liking girls. I wouldn't even allow myself to think about it. There's a word for all of this. It's repressed. I was a really repressed teenager and one who became a really repressed adult, which we will get into shortly. And all of that burying and shoving away made me anxious and emotionally fragile. And by the time I was in my early 20s and out of college, I started having very intense anxiety and began to experience full-blown panic attacks. I'd moved to San Francisco after graduation from college. And by the way, I went to a Catholic college, not, not, not one of those colleges where I was sure to come out and find a girlfriend. 
And I loved San Francisco, but it was also big and intense and unwieldy. And I would wake up on some days and not want to go outside. I felt terrified. And part of me wondered, like, if I was experiencing some kind of agoraphobia. So this was in the early 90s, and Prozac was coming into vogue as an antidepressant. And out of desperation, I had been reading a lot about Prozac. I called my mother, and I said, Mom, I need to go on medication. I remember I was laying on the floor of the hallway of my apartment, staring at the ceiling with the phone cord tangled around my knee. And she said, oh, honey, you're fine. Just like moms do. They say, you're fine. You just need something to do. You need a goal. You need a plan for your life. Because at the time I was working as a receptionist or something. And my mom is nothing if she is not practical when it comes to advice, of course. And I love this about her, frankly, because I am too. It's one of the ways we are really similar. And this is why I called her. I needed someone to tell me what to do. And for a time, this advice was exactly what I needed to hear. And it really was life-changing. So immediately, I set out to make a plan for myself. And within a year, I was in a teaching credential program at San Francisco State University. In addition to beginning my career as a teacher, something equally as important happened. In my teaching credential cohort were three women around my age, all of whom were out-of-the-closet lesbians. And for the first time, I was standing side-by-side with other women who identified as gay and queer. Normal women. One of them even wore dresses. Thank God, I wasn't going to have to give up wearing dresses. And another had a partner, and they planned to have children. And this was also mind-blowing to me. And that really was all it took. This thing I had previously feared and pushed away for so many years now became, over the course of my first year in grad school, kind of normal and even vaguely comfortable. And within a few months, I came out to those women and then to my close friends and my sister, who I'm also very close to and have been my whole life. So to make sure I fit in, I cut my hair off, I adorned some rainbow rings on a ball chain necklace, and began my new life as a lesbian. And if you don't know what rainbow rings are, go ahead and Google rainbow rings necklace 90s and you will see. Anyhow, I started dating pretty quickly and a few things became obvious right away. I was attracted to artists. I dated in this order a writer, a creative director, a photographer, a furniture designer, and a stylist. I seemed to be especially attracted to women who were distant and noncommittal. These sort of, um, I guess those are sort of artist traits too in, in the artist stereotype. And I didn't realize it then, but I was choosing people who reaffirmed this notion of myself as mediocre, as not enough, as unworthy of presence and love. I did have one eight-year-long relationship with a woman who was very loving, but she struggled with addiction and her own bouts of mental illness all of which sort of creates its own kind of distance. And I took it on as my job to become her caretaker and to keep her happy and toward the end even to keep her alive. And the important thing here is what I believed was that these unhealthy relationships just kept happening to me. No matter how toxic the relationship, I would feel both a sense of, why me? And also blame myself like, What is wrong with me that this keeps happening to me? And this cycle eventually caused me to become very depressed and anxious all over again. So in the first year of that long relationship, I should say actually in the last year of that long relationship, I found my first therapist and her name was Karen. 
She was also a lesbian. She had a white noise machine on the floor of her office. And this stood out to me because I had never seen a a noise machine before. This was like in the late 90s or early 2000s. And, you know, now white noise machines are like in every house or many houses. But I'd never seen one before. And she also had a picture of her guru on her shelf, which admittedly freaked me out a little bit. Another characteristic of hers was that she listened a lot and rarely spoke. She was very traditional in her execution of therapy that way. It was very awkward when I didn't have anything to say. Anyway, ever the good girl, I would show up on time to every appointment and put on a show of doing the work, and then I would proceed to lie to her. I lied to her about what was actually going on in my life and about the truth of my relationship so that I wouldn't be accountable to leave my addict partner who I loved very much. And deep down, I knew or thought I knew exactly what she would think and even say if I told her the truth. Maybe that I was a weak coward or worse, that, an, that ultimately my unhappy life and my unhappy relationship was my own responsibility. And the paradox here is that I believed everything was my fault and that at the same time, there was nothing I could do about it. And I finally told Karen the truth, eventually. And when I did, I broke up with my partner the next day. It was like speaking the truth was all I needed to do. And I felt this enormous sense of relief. And shortly thereafter, because I thought everything would be suddenly okay, because I had gotten out of this relationship that was making me unhappy, I stopped seeing Karen. And then when I was about 32, about a year later, I went into the deepest depression of my life. I was so depressed that I started saying on a friend's couch because I couldn't be alone. And it was there on that couch that I hit rock bottom. I was finally scared and unhappy enough to try anything, even being honest with a therapist. And so I got a recommendation and I went and her name was Issa. And I say with total sincerity, I owe Issa my life. She first helped me to come to terms with this belief that I was unlovable. I was so caught up in this notion of being unlovable. It had become my whole identity, overtaking hard worker identity or independent identity. The cycle I had been in with human relationships was reinforcing this identity. I sought unavailable people. They kept me at a distance. I felt mediocre, worthless, and unlovable. Repeat. I also began to understand that I sought people who were distant because it is what I knew and what I thought I deserved. I began to understand that a part of me believed that if I could just get someone to approve of me and think I was smart and talented, I'd win at life. If this sounds familiar to you, it's because it's how many women operate in the world, not just in romantic relationships, but in friendships and professional relationships. And for the record, it's also a thing in psychology. Freud called this tendency repetition compulsion, which is a psychological phenomenon in which a person repeats childhood hurt or trauma or its circumstances over and over again. This includes putting oneself in situations where the event is likely to happen again. Isa helped me to see that this other core belief I had about myself, that I was a victim, was running my life. And honestly, up until that point, I never entertained another possibility. If anyone had ever tried to suggest I had any agency over my life, I would have dismissed them entirely. The whole course of my life was based on bad luck, of course, which maybe I deserved because I was, after all, mediocre. And Issa said to me in so many words, 
you are creating your unhappiness by choosing to stay in this cycle. You can choose to turn this around. And I was like, wait, what? You mean I have a choice here? And it took a while to sink in. And when it had, it was painful to realize how much of my unhappiness in my adult life I had created and how much of my life and time I had wasted in my own pity party. But it also meant something new and important. If I had such power to create my own unhappiness, I also had the power to create my own happiness. And while I didn't know exactly how that was going to work, I was all in. And one of the things I decided I needed to do was develop a new narrative for my life. I began to reframe my story for what my life could be, who I was, what I could become, what I needed to begin believing, not just saying, but truly believing was that I had worth and that I was smart and talented and worthy of all the love in the world. I understood for the first time, no one could do that for me, not my parents, not a potential partner, no one but me. As many people do when they wake up like I did that year, I became a seeker. This time, not of another person to fix or finally approve of me, but a seeker of truth. And what Issa taught me was that in order to begin to build a sense of worth, I had to confront all of the stuff I was ashamed of. My sexuality, my sense of belonging in the world, my sense of hopelessness, my deeply held beliefs about my worth, my belief that my parents weren't really proud of me, my need to have my parents be proud of me, my need to have approval. I had to confront the shame of the shame of the shame that I allowed myself to stay in ugly, sad, unfulfilling relationships and that I allowed people to treat me badly and that I allowed myself to treat others badly. But part of what undoes shame is giving it a voice. And Isa helped me to uncover all of the stuff I'd been pushing down and away for so many years. Slowly, I began to acknowledge and release all that stuff. It was like a confessional. It was like a cleansing. Around the same time, I went on a hike with a couple of friends. After the hike, I spotted a yellow weathered copy of a book called Creative Visualization. And it was sitting on the damp footwell in the back of my friend Catherine's old Toyota. It was by a woman named Shakti Gawain, and I read the back of the book. Creative visualization is the practice of using mental imagery and affirmation to produce positive changes in your life. Ooh, I thought to myself. I asked Catherine if I could borrow it, and I devoured it that evening. It was a revelation. It was a serendipitous moment. This book made me think even more about the role of my attitude and beliefs and choices in my own happiness. Of course, making good choices is not as easy as it sounds, and it's definitely not all about visualization. Those of you who have done this work or are doing this work know that it takes years because the beliefs we form about the way the world works and who we are when we are young are so deeply ingrained in us. It's like they are in our bodies. They live in our bodies, buried deep in our bones and our cellular structure. We cannot simply wake up one morning and shift our thinking. It takes enormous discipline and practice. And for several years, I dedicated my life to that discipline and practice. And I stumbled a lot. In spite of all my hard work, within the first year of that searching, I found myself in a relationship that was just a different version of the same distant person I'd always chosen. But I now had tools and I understood things that helped me work to exit the scene more quickly. And that work was only the beginning. The universe was testing me 
And better yet, I realized that these experiences were the best teachers. So I started to have gratitude for them. I decided then to stop focusing on finding a relationship and I started focusing on myself. I made a plan. I was not going to get into another relationship, even if it took decades, until I figured out who I was and what made me happy. Until I woke up feeling completely full inside my own solo life, I was going to continue on this learning journey. And I started to ask some questions that were brand new to me. What did I love? What did I value about myself? What did I want to do with my life? What made me happy? What did I want to spend my time doing? What did I want the rest of my life to look like? What did I want to learn? What was I grateful for? I knew very little about these things because I'd been so outwardly focused on finding someone to validate my very existence. And do you know what I began doing almost immediately? I began making things. When I stripped away the need to please others or fix others, when I wasn't focused on distracting myself from my shame by repeating the cycle of emotional dependence on others, I had this deep desire to create. And when I was connected to that deep desire to create, I found that I loved being alone. I had an inner world so rich that I was exploding with ideas. And so began my creative journey. And to be clear, I'd been interested in art and design since my 20s. Almost every person I'd chosen to be in a relationship with over the years, as I'd previously mentioned, was an artist or designer. I know now that was me living that urge vicariously through other people, never imagining I could be the creator. And part of my job as a newly creative person was to reinvent my personal narrative, to keep the parts of it that felt authentic and good, and to let the rest go and to add new parts. More and more, I allowed myself to visualize, to literally fantasize about creating a life in which I was a joyful, happy, and thriving human being. I began pouring that out with a fervor I'd never experienced. I sewed, I drew, I painted, I took photographs, I collaged, I wrote, I read, I took solo road trips, I attended classes, I learned new skills, I started a blog, I began meeting other creative people online, I forged new friendships. And art became my expression of my own humanity. Art became my tether to connecting in a meaningful way with other people. Art was everything to me. Art became my survival. So back to the original question I posed at the beginning of this episode. How did I go from an adult who had zero artistic aspirations or experience to someone who is doing what she is doing today, sitting here in this room in front of this microphone talking to you about my story? I dove into the abyss and I emerged as an artist. The whole concept of art saving my life was, at least at the time, strange. My entire life, as we now have heard, I never considered myself even vaguely artistic or even creative until I was in my early 30s. Even for a long time after I was making art in those early days, I would never have called myself an artist. Maybe what helped me was that very fact, because I'd never been labeled a creative person. I had no expectations and nor did anyone else. I was free. I didn't care or even know in the beginning that what I was making was actually really bad and that it would take years to develop any talent. But that didn't matter to me in the slightest at the time 
The idea of being a professional artist was so far out of my reality that I never would have even considered it. And for several years, I simply entered a love affair with making stuff in the privacy of my own apartment. I loved things like, you know, the satisfaction I felt when I completed something or practicing something and seeing progress in my skills. And I loved the freedom I allowed myself to be messy and to try new things, even though I had no idea what I was doing half the time. And I loved being inspired by other artists and I bought book after book of art and design, most of which I still have today. At first, there was no blog and no Instagram, no public speaking, no books, no vehicle for broad sharing of my work. There was only me and my very mediocre art. And thankfully, that mediocre slash bad stuff inevitably drove me to make stuff that wasn't bad. The cycle of finding your creative voice is really, in my opinion, quite beautiful in that way because it works naturally. When we create regularly and we're we're drawn and driven to creating, we grow and we change and improve. You can't sit down and do the same thing every day and not get better at it. And so for several years, this new focus on art, on self-expression, on spending time alone, on getting to know and like myself became my sole focus. And I took this discipline that I'd previously used to follow the rules and be a good girl and be a good girlfriend and get people to love me. And I poured it into making and I began to experience a really deep intrinsic happiness for the first time since I was a little kid. An excitement about getting home from work in the evening or staying in on the weekend to work on projects by myself on my floor in my tiny apartment. And eventually I began sharing the stuff I was making first as gifts to family and friends. And then eventually I began sharing the stuff I was making on the internet. One thing it's important to to note here is that I didn't become a professional artist for eight years after I started drawing and painting. I had no professional aspirations and I never even imagined that what I do now was even possible. At the time, the internet was sort of becoming a space for creative people to share what they were making and the DIY movement of the early 2000s was taking off and I really kind of got sucked into that and the internet then became this place where I went to look to see what other people were making and to get inspired. And then I began sharing there too, first on Flickr and then on a blog I kept. And this really miraculous thing happened. And it's a thing that happens when you begin sharing what you're making in a public space, which now we have so much access to with the internet. You become part of a community of other makers. I began meeting other artists, some who were aspiring like me and some who identified as crafters, and some who sold their work, and some who even made art full-time. And eventually, I began seeing through these relationships pictures of what my life as a working artist might look like. And I could not shake that someday I wanted to do this all of the time for a living, and I even considered going back to school for a period of time there. And even though it felt incredibly far away, the idea that, that this life could exist for me did not feel wholly out of reach because of that community. And so in my now expanded mind filled with possibility, I had something to live for and something to work for. And work for it, I did. And I discovered that the very act of creating, it is power. Art is power. And I do not mean power over others. I mean the power to be an agent of your own life an agent of change and compassion and justice and storytelling and connection in the world. I lived for so long being numb to myself and my own agency. 
Art gave me the power to feel, to feel joy and happiness and hope for my life, to feel the significance of my existence, something I had been lacking for so many years, to feel like I belonged to something and that something belonged to me. And now, of course, I, I cannot imagine art not being my livelihood and the thing I get to do all of the time, every day. Art is the one thing in my life that requires very little motivation. People ask me all the time, like, how do you work so much? Because I'm, you know, I, I do put in a lot of hours. And my answer is that it feels so natural. You know, besides the good people in my life, art is the one thing that makes me want to get out of bed in the morning. It feels as necessary as breathing almost. Even the brutal aspects of the creative process have taught me everything worth knowing and fighting for in my life. When you make art, you take risks. You make something out of nothing. And art has the power to transform lives and disrupt the status quo and change the conversation and shift mindsets and lift spirits and offer comfort or connection to people who need it most. And when you make art, you have the opportunity to fight injustice and speak your voice. So in future episodes, I'm going to talk a lot about the various things I've learned since I began this journey, this story that I told you, and all of those in-between points between then and now, and what I learned about the creative process, about showing up, about boundaries, about workaholism, about the importance of self-love and acceptance, and the importance of rejecting perfection, about running a business, and all those kinds of things. I'll also invite guests to talk about their journeys as well. In the meantime, may we all stay awake to our experience of being a creative person and the power that we hold in that. And may we all turn, you know, press the stop button on this podcast and feel inspired not just to continue to push through the messiness of the creative process, which is, which is another episode um, or two or three but also to remember that your story, your art is your power. And one last note before I end, because some of you are probably wondering, some of you who don't know me or don't follow me online already, in 2008, after four years of being single, I felt ready to be in a relationship with a different kind of person, someone who was present and available. And within weeks of deciding I was ready, I met my amazing now wife, life partner, Clay. I am happy to report that this September, we'll have been together for 13 years, and this past June, we celebrated eight years of legal marriage. In the words of one of my favorite writers, Jeanette Winterson, I know now, after 50 years, that the finding, losing, forgetting, remembering, leaving, returning, never stops. The whole of life is about another chance, and while we are alive, till the very end, there is always another chance. Thank you for listening. And big thanks to my friend Nick Lambert for the original music and to my amazing team at the CoLoop Podcast Network. I hope you'll all join me for future episodes. Have a magical day, everyone. Bye.